Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. Why speak of climate change and the present crisis of our democracy in the same breath? Here's why. Quote, the fact is that many of the structural issues straining our democracy are also limiting our ability to respond to climate change. Addressing problems like the erosion of voting rights, gerrymandering, weakened regulatory agencies, and the influence of money in politics is perhaps also the most important means of making progress toward addressing the climate crisis. So observed my guest today, physicist and climate scientist, Dr. Jason Smurden, in 2018. His trenchant insight is reason enough to speak with him. Add to that this summer's record heat and drought and the fact that Dr. Smurden is a Gustavus graduate, class of 98, and you understand why I've been so looking forward to our conversation. Professor Smurden, Jason, majored in physics at Gustavus and went on to earn a PhD in applied physics from the University of Michigan. Since 2017, he has been a Lamont Research Professor at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University, where he is also an Earth Institute faculty member and co-director of the undergraduate program in sustainable development. An expert in paleoclimate and modern and future climate, as well as atmospheric science, he has co-authored authored and presented a long list of publications and presentations, including with Edmund Mattei, the highly regarded second edition of the textbook, Climate Change, the Science of Global Warming and Our Energy Future, published by Columbia in 2018. Of note also is his involvement in the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and his ongoing public outreach through media interviews and other efforts. He is, in short, a leading climate researcher and educator, and I'm delighted he can join me on the podcast. So, Jason, welcome. It's really great to have you on. Hi, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and we were saying before we started recording, we didn't we didn't cross paths at, at Gustavus, but um, I'm glad we're crossing paths uh, now. Um, and I'll tell you, I'm in I'm in Minneapolis, and it's been um, as you I'm sure you know, it's been hot and dry. Uh, uh, what's it been like out in your your area, New York? It's been hot and wet. <laughs> hot the and wet. Out yeah. here has really been through the roof. In fact, uh, Portland was getting all the press for having uh, you know. Temperatures over 110 degrees, but uh, when you combine the heat and humidity that we were having out here, our wet bulb temperature was actually higher than what Portland was experiencing during their wow. heat. Wow! Well, all right, we'll get into climate change and all of its uh, aspects. But um, so, are you in New York City? Where do you live? Yeah, I, I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and uh, my office is actually across the street, so that's where I am. Oh, that's great. Gosh, as I, I think I mentioned in an email, my wife, Kate, uh, grew up, well, she grew up mostly in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, parents moved there when it was, you know, when it was not fashionable. Um, but, oh, I loved, we both loved the Upper West Side. And uh, I don't know if you ever get to Zabar's or heard of Zabar's. I love Zabar's. I order from Zabar's. So, and, uh, and a Gustavus alum for a time was the executive chef there. I'm trying to interview him too for the podcast. So, that I did not uh, know. But I've, I've spent my share of time at Zabar's. Yeah, uh, was, yeah, yeah. It was Andrew uh, Andrew Rainier, I think his name was. He was a psych major at Gustavus, and we ran into him. We actually ran into him with a friend whose son was wearing a T-shirt, Gustavus T-shirt. Ran into him on the streets of New York. He shouted out to us, didn't know who he was, and 
I'm such a fan of Zabar's. I um, sometimes joke my I want my ashes scattered there. But um, <laughs> I knelt when I heard when he said, "I'm the executive." I said, "Oh my God, are you kidding?" Me? Anyway, it's cool. That's a great thread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, it's great to talk with you. Thanks so much. Um, tell why don't we start? Tell us a little bit about the um, the Lamont Doherty uh, Observatory and Earth Institute that you're involved in. What's what's their mission? Well, they have overlapping missions, but Lamont itself um, is one of the largest uh, premier, premier earth science institutes uh, in the country and in the world, really. We have, uh, well, pre-COVID on any given day, we have uh, five to 700 people on campus. Uh, that includes faculty, students, postdocs, staff, uh, our outreach folks. And the primary mission of Lamont is to uh, pursue an understanding in the earth sciences across all areas. So we have people working on seismology and earthquake hazards. We have uh, oceanographers working to map the ocean floor. Uh, lots of climate scientists like myself, a lot of people doing paleoclimate, uh, studying sediment cores, core records, et cetera. So it's really uh, the full spectrum of earth science that's done here. And our history is actually uh, quite extensive as well. So it was established in the late 40s. Um, and many of the discoveries that contributed to plate tectonics and our understanding thereof uh, were done at Lamont. Much of the early climate uh, work um, was done there and, and part through um, their management of uh, a series of ships. So Columbia actually has um, owned and operated ships uh, since Lamont's inception. And um, those ships have traveled all over the world to collect sediment cores, uh, map the ocean floor, do lots of different things. And, and part of that history through the, the work to collect cores was to understand Earth's climate history over um, thousands to millions of years into the past. So yeah, that's, that's cool. I didn't, yeah, that's yeah. neat. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. Well, so and then Lamont um, is part of the Earth Institute, which is becoming, I should mention, uh, the climate school here at Columbia. So we are oh. also setting up um, the first school at Columbia in, in more than half a century is being established as a climate school here. Wow. And that school and the Earth Institute's mission um, has largely been focused on sustainability. So Earth science is part of that. But um, when we look at sustainability through a broader lens, we, of course, involve the physical sciences, but uh, the social sciences, the humanities, um, you know, the fundamental pillars of sustainability are the environment, social equity and um economic equity. And so all of those facets are considered uh, across our research and educational initiatives within the Earth Institute and ultimately uh, will be reflected in what we develop within the climate school. That's really exciting. So is the, cli the climate school, it sounds like, is in process? When, when does it officially open or begin? Uh, <laughs> that that process is, is just as complicated as uh, addressing climate change itself at a, <laughs> a large bureaucracy like Columbia. It is well underway, and I think the expectation is that final approval will happen at the end of this year. But um, we are developing the educational curricula, uh, thinking about how all the research initiatives are going to go together. Um, there have been lots of folks hired to, to oversee this spin-up. So it's it's well underway, but I think that the expectation is the official um, establishment of the school will be at the end of this year. Congratulations, though. That's exciting. And uh, of course, it appeals to me, the interdisciplinary, the emphasis on humanities as well as everything else. And the other thing about um, what you were saying, of course, is just, you know, your work. I mean, you're, you're sort of a historian, right? I mean, you, you, you can't understand the present climate crisis without understanding, you know, 
the past, I guess, right? I mean, the the paleoclimatology, which is you know much 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 earlier than the history I study. Yeah. Well, uh, but still. Greg, that, that's actually uh, you'd be you'd be very happy to know that I actually work with uh, historians um, because the area of paleoclimate that I study is over it's it's high resi- resolution paleoclimatology over the last several thousand years. So we can reconstruct seasonal or annual climate conditions uh, that are valuable for interpreting past historical events. In fact, um, we, oh, yeah. just re- we just recently wrote a paper on the uh, hydroclimatic context of the Great Famine in the early 1300s. Oh, oh that is great. Uh, and I'm, I'm spinning up uh, several projects with a historian that works on uh, pre-colonial history in e- East Africa, and we're working to reconstruct some of the droughts that are thought to have been important um, over Kenya and Uganda, um, in the 17 and 1800s. So there's, there's, you're right generally, but actually a lot of the work that I do, um, is in partnership and collaborations with historians. That is really cool. Uh, fantastic. And my head is already spinning about how to hook you up with some, well, with the Africanist in our department and get you to come maybe to our, uh, virtually, if not in person, a history methods course. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even just, um, I'm just thinking about my own, uh, teaching of the U.S. survey and how much work I've, well, since, especially since the pandemic, how I've had to think about much more the role of disease in history, um, you know, not to right. mention climate. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. So let's go back in time to where <laughs> we're talking about the past. Um, tell us a little bit about your own background, where you, where you grew up, um, when you became interested in science, when, why, how, and, uh, and also when, why, how Gustavus, what brought you to Gustavus? Yeah, that's going to take the whole the whole hour, Greg. That's fine. <laughs> my, my, I think my my connection starts with my dad, who's a scientist and a professor um, oh. of biochemistry and biophysics. And so I was actually born in Corvallis, Oregon, when he was completing his PhD there, uh, and then moved shortly thereafter to St. Louis, where he did his uh, PhD, or I'm sorry, his postdoc in the pathology department uh, at Washington University. Uh, and so I was there. For the first four years of my life, that's that's where uh, my earliest memories arise. And then uh, we moved in 1980 to Pullman, Washington, which is in eastern Washington, almost uh, right against the um, Idaho border. Uh, but he took a position at Washington State University where he spent his whole career. And that's where I grew up and, um, you know, uh, spent my formative years before leaving for Gustavus. Do you have memories of, uh, I mean, did you, you know, for example, my, my um, parents were hairdressers and we worked, um, my brother and I were the, I just have one sibling, younger brother. We were the cleanup boys in these different salons. And <laughs> I mean, I, you know, in a way it was, it was a great experience. I certainly, it didn't make me want to become a hairdresser. I mean, were you, were you ever going with your dad to his lab or in his lab or watching him work? What? Yeah, he would take us in and we would do some experiments. He would let us, I can remember uh, early when he would um, let us put different things like milk into the centrifuge. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, we had experiences like that. And later on, I actually worked as a as a dishwasher in his lab, um, <laughs> which probably uh, did more to dissuade me from going into science than anything. Uh, it's a pretty laborious process. But he likes to point out that you know, at some point, I don't know, it must have been when I was in high school that I told him that, uh, you know, I never wanted to do what he did, uh, <laughs> which was probably more specific than uh, <laughs> than the more general exposure that he gave us to science and the interest there. I think 
I think I was definitely um, encouraged to pursue science through my exposures to my dad. Um, but maybe more importantly, early, I think I had um, an interest in just being a professor. Um, huh, yeah. I, I really, I think I gained an appreciation for that. I can remember watching, uh, this puts you maybe in, in my headspace at that time, but I can remember being really influenced by Dead Poet Society. And, oh, yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. The, yes. The Robin Williams character in that, right. in that film, you know, I, I just imagine myself standing up on desks and telling people to rip up their textbooks. <laughs> and, and have so, you, have you done, have you done that yet? <laughs> you know, the, you don't have that many opportunities for that in the sciences. <laughs> <laughs> Jump up on the lab table or something. Maybe, yeah. Maybe I should encourage my graduate students to rip up uh, the occasional paper, which is, is maybe as close as I've gotten. But you yeah, know, that it was, movie, uh, oh, uh, yeah. it was, Great it was, movie. And, 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 you know, William's character in that movie, I think, just spoke to something about what I wanted to pursue uh, in an academic career. So I think I'm not one of these people that from an early age knew that I wanted to do X, Y, or Z, but yeah. I do think uh, over the course of my time growing up, I, I, I gained an appreciation and an interest in becoming a professor sort of generally defined and I've filled in since then. What about your, um, what about your mom? Was she working when you were younger? She didn't uh, work full time when we were younger, but she um, was trained as an elementary school teacher, specifically a, a special education teacher, mm. and did that a fair amount um, when we were quite young, but actually had trouble keeping up her license as my dad's career took us to several different states. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. And so she didn't get back to teaching until later. But I think, you know, ultimately, I grew up with two educators in the house. Um, right. So education was very important, but it was also not something that was um, overbearing. I think that they taught us um, about how fun learning could be and how important it was. But um, I also feel like they were quite well-rounded. You know, we, we were encouraged to pursue music and sports as well. And my folks, actually, we can get into this, but um, grew up in Minnesota, which is part of oh. the connection that I ultimately followed okay. to Gustavus. Yeah, I wondered if that was a Minnesota connection. And, and by the way, do you, are, are you, so it sounds like you have siblings. Are any of them in the, in the sciences at all? So my sister's a nurse, and my uh, younger brother is somebody you should interview. He go to Gustavus, but he, he has a more interesting life story than me. He started out <laughs> uh, sort of rejecting, I think, the educational um, paths that my dad and I took. You know, by the time he graduated, I was going into graduate school, and he he was a mechanic for over ten years, and hmm. then just kind of took a mulligan, went back to school um, through community college, and then went back to Washington State, ultimately did his PhD here at Columbia in neuroscience and is now in the <laughs> office of research here at Columbia, which I, <laughs> yeah, it's quite the story. I, neither of us would have ever predicted that we would have both ended up here in New York, let alone at the same institution, but here we are. That's fantastic. I think I, I think I just might well interview him if he's willing. Oh, that's great. That's terrific. I love that story. So, um, so how Gustavus? Why Gustavus? I mean, there's the Minnesota connection, sure. But I mean, did you did you know about it growing up, or what what put no. it on your radar? You know, it it was um, not on my radar. I mean, I. I after going through high school in Pullman, Pullman was an amazing place to grow up. I, you know, spent a lot of time hiking in the mountains, skiing, really appreciating a lot of the outdoor uh, recreation that's in abundance there and in the surrounding area, but um, was ready to spread my wings. And, you know, there a lot of 
of the kids who I went to school with in high school end up at Washington State University or some of the area schools. And for me, I wanted to go farther afield. Um, and so applied to a lot of different places across the country, but applied to a lot of Minnesota schools because I still, my grandparents were still in the Twin Cities. Um, some of my extended family was still there as well. And so for me, it was a chance to spread my wings, but still have uh, a support ne network that was close. Um, and so that's how I, I remember thinking about it when I was applying. And I applied to tons of MIAC schools. And um, to p tell you the truth, uh, when I went out to visit um, many different schools in Minnesota, St. John's was kind of at the top of my list. Hmm. Um, just by virtue of multiple things, I, I wanted to, I was also thinking D3 because I wanted to play baseball. Oh yeah. I was um, going to ask you if you were applying to just yeah, D3 schools. Yeah. Not exclusively, but um, I wanted to try and play baseball um, in college. And so uh, D3 schools were a good option, you know, allow me to continue to play, but also get um, really good liberal arts education. And so I was looking at a lot of the Minnesota schools and it came down to my visit when I came out um, with my family to visit all these schools and Gustavus you know, to be honest, it had this weird name It, you know, Christ right. Chapel was on the cover of all its, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's promotional materials. It had this Swedish Lutheran heritage that I had no connection to. I, I wasn't, I wasn't wild about, uh, you know, the religious affiliation. Right. And so it really wasn't high on my list, but I think multiple things conspired to really, um, helped me have an amazing visit there. First of all, my dad actually knew um, someone who was in the biology department at the time, Ellis Bell. Oh, sure. And yeah. So he gave a, he gave a lecture as part of our visit. And we stayed um, in one of the guest houses when we stayed, when we came and visited specifically Gustavus. So we were there, I think for one or two nights. Um, and that was longer than I spent at a lot of the other schools. And I, I, was interested in both physics and um, literature. And so I was put in a literature class and ended up meeting a student in that class um, who, you know, invited me to an off-campus party that night, which was great. great. <laughs> uh, I, I, so I, there were some things about the visit. Um, awesome. I'm not sure if that student was a plant, by the way, but um, <laughs> it, it, it turned out uh, to be just a, a magical visit. I had uh, great experiences with the physics department and the people I interacted with while I was there. And it completely um, changed my mind. And after the visit, uh, Gustavus was it. I decided that was where I was going and um, the rest is history. Great story uh, in so many ways. I remember Ellis Bell. I think Ellis Bell came after Kate and I, but I certainly remember him. The um, you know uh, regular listeners to the podcast of the podcast know so many people comment on what you just said about it's the visit, and there is something I felt it myself as a visiting. You know, when I came for my interview to campus, I'd interviewed. I guess I just had one other on campus interview, but still there was something about the place that I thought, my God, you know, I, I, I'd like you. I thought, I didn't know what's ELC. I didn't know how to pronounce synod. I thought it was synod. You know, I didn't know what I was. Um, and, you know, I had a slight connection in Minnesota. My dad is a hairdresser at work for a company then based in the Fauché Tower down in, when I was really young in, in Minneapolis. Anyway, but the visit was 
wow. I mean, I love the students. I the faculty. I met everything about it. So I don't. <laughs> there's something about the visit. <laughs> Gustavus really, really nails it. Um, well, and, and it's a and special still does. place. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so much about the Gustavus experience is the community and and what it's like to be there, and it's hard to put that on paper. It is, and when and I have to admit, or you know, acknowledge, I guess is a better way to say that that I was always kind of skeptical about that, um, but. Um, but it's real. Uh, I mean, I've learned over the years and certainly in, in hearing so many people, all different, you know, majors, backgrounds talk about that. It's real. So um, I guess if we could just get everyone to visit Gustavus, other schools would have to go out of business maybe. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's a great story. Um, so um, when you when you came to Gustavus, were you – did you – it sounds like you certainly knew you were interested in physics as well as literature. When did you decide to major in physics? Was that right off the bat sort of or? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I decided immediately, but, um, you know, the way that physics is sequenced, uh, you really have to start, um, certainly the way that it's sequenced at Gustavus, um, you have to start in that fall semester. You need to take physics one and then you got to take two and three and, there's no space for really taking a semester off if you're going to get all of the classes in. Right. Um, so you kind of, you really buckle up and, and settle in right from day one. But of course, with the liberal arts uh, requirements and education at, at Gustavus, um, you take a lot of other classes. So what I was happy to do actually was, I think I was still uncertain um, in that first year. Um, but I almost was able to continue without making a choice in the sense that I still took a lot of um, English classes over my time there and was really able to continue to pursue that in interest in addition to um, doing physics. And, you know, frankly, I think my career has continued in that way. I mean, I do physics, I do uh, climate science, but one of the things I love about it is the writing. I love yeah. writing papers. I like writing uh, popular pieces. Um, and so I've been able to, uh, maintain that as part of what I do. So I like to think I didn't necessarily make a choice that I continued my interests in literature and writing. Um, but of course, ultimately just majored in physics. Right. But no, it's, I mean, just having read some of what you've written for I mean, popular, uh, audiences. Yeah. It, it's your, your, your writing is terrific. It's clear. Um, and how important that is to, uh, being able to communicate as a, as a scientist. I mean, we historians have some of the you know same issues, right? We, are we writing just for one another or for a broader audience? And how much is that the latter valued by our professional peers? I'm curious about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, about your your kind of more, more specific experiences in the classroom and out of the classroom at Gustavus. Did you, for example, did you play baseball there? Did you? So I tried out, I played fall ball in, uh, when I first got there, but ultimately didn't make the team, um, which was hard at the time. But I think in retrospect, it was um, a mercy killing in the sense that I don't <laughs> think I would have been able to continue um, playing baseball with the requirements on my time from physics. I mean, yes, it was a very intensive major and um, was something that would have been hard to um, maintain the additional extracurricular commitments like baseball if I had stayed on. What about, um, it's funny, I'm bursting. <laughs> what about, I mean, I, you know, I wonder, and especially because of your own position now, you're at a major research university. What, what, what are, I mean, what are thinking back at 
on your experience at Gustavus and your, in your and thinking about your current experience now as a professor at Columbia, physics professor, what what are the what are the differences or the pros and cons between studying physics as an undergraduate at a liberal arts college like Gustavus versus uh, a major research university like Columbia? I mean, obviously, I, th I guess resources would be one difference, but what else? So resources, of course. So there's not. Um necessarily ready labs to step into and have hands-on experience. We do some of that at Gustavus, but um, it's not as widely available as um, an R1 like Columbia. So I, the pros are that it was an incredibly supportive environment. You know, speaking about community, the community within the physics department um, was just so profound and supportive. Um, you know, those of us who had work study in uh, the physics department were given offices in Olin and I, we, we could talk for a long time about uh, stories of mischief and insanity uh, <laughs> while we were all there working on our problem sets and doing grading and everything uh, that was part of our work study. Students slept there. You know, it was really uh, a full-time dormitory in, in many ways as we all worked through our classes. And that support, um, I mean, it extended to all levels. I can remember... Um, going down to Chuck Niederreiter's house to do impromptu tutoring sessions for classes he wasn't even teaching. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's that kind of support that you get uh, from Gustavus that's um, so important. It was so important for me in, in getting through the program. Um, where I think it's harder to get exposure is to the interdisciplinary fields where a lot of the you know, cutting edge research is being done. So the research that I'm doing right now, I had no real clue that I could do what I'm doing now with a physics degree. And we can talk more about how I got onto my path, but yeah. it was really through luck and happenstance that I ended up doing what I'm doing. Um, and actually my experience, I guess, David speaks to this. So I actually wanted to do um, a joint physics and geology major. I was interested in geology coming from the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, I, I really was engaged by geology and wanted to pursue that at Gustavus and took uh, quite a few geology classes. But my impression of what geophysics was at the time was seismology. And mm. um, I enjoyed that. I, um, you know, was really interested in what was done with seismology. I actually, when my parents were on sabbatical in Switzerland, I went for one of my J terms and the internship that I did at uh, the ETH in Zurich, where my my um, father was doing his sabbatical, was working with a geophysicist going out and fixing seismometers in the field. But then I also built a seismometer while I was there, That's great. brought this prototype back, um, and then worked on different seismometer designs um, as my as one of my research projects at Gustavus. Um, but I, I took this geology class where I was really interested in these active source seismology applications. In other words, you use a truck or dynamite to make sound waves that go down into the subsurface, reflect off of different layers in the subsurface, come back up to an array of seismometers, and you can actually um, map the layers of uh, the stratigraphic layers underneath the, the surface just using the seismic waves. So you can get wow. these high resolution images of the subsurface. But I, I did this project and paper for this class that I was taking at the time. And it was being taught by a field geologist. She was a visiting field geologist. So nobody on faculty right now, and I can't even remember her name, but she hated my project. She didn't think that, um, 
you know, you could do this and that uh, it was an untrustworthy method, et cetera. And it really discouraged me and it kind of turned me off from what I thought was my only chance to do geophysics, which was seismology at the time. And so that was actually uh, an experience that motivated me to kind of put that interest down and focus more specifically on physics while I was at Gustavus. And it was only, like I said, through luck and happenstance that in graduate school, I rediscovered this path and was able to re-engage it. But I, I think that if students aren't proactive about seeking out um, research internships or other independent studies outside of Gustavus, they really don't get that exposure to those interdisciplinary cutting edge fields that don't fit neatly into these right. kind of silo departments that we have in a lot of places. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an important point and great advice for anyone, uh, well, any current students or prospective students uh, listening. So um, I'm trying to think who was it? Well, Steve Melema, Chuck Niederreiter, you mentioned they were profs in the physics department when you were there, still are, and they're great. Uh, both say hi. What about, um, let me tell you, was, was Richard Fuller still there? Or Dennis Henry? Richard uh, yeah. Fuller was just transitioning out when I was there. I never took okay. a class with Richard. D.C. Henry, the infamous D.C. Henry yeah, uh, was yeah. there and and... I've got lots of scars to show for the classes I took from him. Uh, Dennis was Tom a force. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Tom Huber, yeah. right. Tom Huber right. and, and Paul Solnier had just gotten yeah. there. Yeah, they're still um, there. They're going strong. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a great, I mean, I, I'm biased, I guess. I teach at Gustavus. I've been there for a long time. But wow, the physics department, it really, it seems like one of the best, I mean, of small liberal arts uh, colleges. It's certainly in the upper Midwest. Just amazing the people who have come out of there. But but take your I take your point. I think it's an important point about that. And that's true really in our field too about the interdisciplinary. Just in general, I wish I wish um, my wife was an American studies major, so in, the interdisciplinary just came sort of naturally to her. She got a PhD in American studies. But I wish still wish we could do more of that uh, as departments. Right, we're still kind of siloed in our departments. It's better. It's more interdisciplinary even than when you were there. But but we have a ways to go. Um, so I want to hear more about the luck and happenstance part of your journey. Yeah, d develop that a little bit. So you, uh, first of all, why Michigan? What what led you to the University of Michigan from Gustavus? So this is one of the main luck and happenstance things. Okay. So uh, I graduated uh, the year that uh, the tornado hit. So right, the infamous tornado. Yeah, the infamous tornado. And I really wanted to get back to the Northwest. Um, so most of the schools I applied to. We're all in the Pacific Northwest, California, et cetera. Um, but I applied to a few schools that had good programs in the Midwest, and Michigan was one of them. I had the chance to visit Michigan um, early, had a great experience, um, was really impressed by uh, the visit, but it still was fighting this these headwinds, uh, given the fact that it was still in the Midwest. Um, <laughs> and so I was planning on visiting all these uh, West Coast schools, during my spring break um, and ultimately flew back and had this whole itinerary for visiting all these schools on the West Coast um, during my spring break. But of course, the tornado hit the first Sunday of that spring break. Right. And I turned right around to come back and volunteer and, you know, pick. Um, I was living off campus, pick uh, our things up out of the yard. Um, Thank and, you. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, and never ultimately visited um, the schools on the West Coast that I was interested in. And I don't know how things would have shaken out. Maybe uh, after visiting, Michigan would have still risen to the top. But I think that had a huge impact on um, 
you know, the schools that I looked at and, um, given everything that happened and everything that I was able to, um, you know, evaluate, uh, Michigan became, uh, the clear winner. And so I ended up going there. Who'd you Uh, work with at Michigan? Was there a particular individual? Well, so I went, so one of the, one of the things that was a selling point for Michigan was that it was an applied physics department, which meant that you, it, it was a program, um, that you could work in lots of different departments doing applied physics applications. So people in the program work, um, in ultrafast uh, optics, they work in uh, biophysics labs, they work in geophysics labs, et cetera. And so I liked the idea of the flexibility because as we talked earlier, I, I knew that I wanted to get my PhD and ultimately become a professor. Um, I thought that I wanted to go into uh, biophysics and go into optics. So that was kind of what I was thinking about at that point. Um, and but I also knew that I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. So the flexibility of the applied physics program, I also um, was on a three-year fellowship where I wasn't tied to any specific professor's um, funding when I got there. It was also a real um, bonus. Yeah, no kidding. I can imagine. That's, so that's fantastic. I, it, 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 so it was great. And I, again, it was a fantastic program and um, it was a great experience. Um, but I, I, I went, I, I got on an NIH training grant. I started in a lab where I was, I was shooting proteins with lasers, which <laughs> sounds really cool. Uh, but it wasn't, I, I actually, I had very little wet lab experience. And of course, the first thing they made me do, uh, as part of my project was, um, work with potassium cyanide because we had to, <laughs> We had to remove copper from the active side of this protein that we were studying with these lasers. And I can remember one of the senior graduate students advising me that if I smelled almond, it was probably too late, but to, to leave the room that that happened. It was this really dangerous process of like, of adding acid to uh, this potassium cyanide concentration. You couldn't do it too fast because it would vaporize. And if you inhaled the potassium cyanide vapor, things were bad. So this is what me who, you know, was, was not somebody that was particularly um, comfortable in a wet lab, uh, started doing. But the bigger challenge was that, uh, you know, this process, uh, this optical process of trying to um, observe the kinetics of these proteins with what was ultimately a phosphorescent process, took tons of time tinkering with an optics table. Um, and so you spent 90% of your time um, tinkering with these um, experimental apparatus and, and very little time um, collecting the data. And yeah. I, I was kind of miserable. I, I really sure. was not uh, that connected to the project. I rotated through a couple other labs, but I guess the other thing that I was missing was um, sort of big picture connection. Um, I was also, it was kind of at that point where I was coming into um, my awareness of um, you know, environmental activism. I started working with the League of Conservation Voters. I always oh. had these interests, but um, I kind of assumed that they would be separate from my professional path. And I, I was, it was kind of coming to a head that, you know, I was really going to have to put these things together. Yes. Um, just a quick story. You know, I, 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 was, I was involved in different environmental um, act, um, activism on campus, but I was also influenced by people on the Gustavus campus. And one of my favorite stories was there was a group 
Um, at the time, one of my close friends from physics, Sedge Freeman, was part of it. It was called the Juggling Socialists. And one of the oh, things I that they would do. Know them well. Yes. I don't know if they still do this, but, you know, what they would do uh, when we were there was they would pull up chairs along the conveyor belt in the old cafeteria. I don't know if you can actually do this in the new one. Uh, and they would eat the wasted food on the plate as it went by. I remember that. <laughs> it I was do. such a great food waste awareness thing. Said would yes. bring back whole apples and cookies to the physics um, <laughs> office after they did this. But, you know, there were things sort of toward the end of my time at Gustavus where I was sort of grappling with this and, and engaging in discussions. And so it, it really came to a head when I was in graduate school and miserable in these labs and thinking about what I really wanted to do with my career. And I was actually thinking about uh, finishing up with a, a master's and then maybe going into policy and pursuing another path. And uh, it was a, it was one of these, you know, we all have, them. it was one of these sort of existential moments. I, I failed my first qualifying exam. <laughs> my second year was just a mess, but I, I was still on fellowship and I, I decided that um, I would take some classes that I found interesting. And so I took this class called the science and politics of global warming. And wow. it was taught by um, a professor of geophysics, Henry Pollock. And his, it was team taught. Uh, the other teacher was his wife, who was the president of the Michigan environmental council at the time, Lana Pollock. Um, so very active in, in Michigan state politics. And so they, this was in the late nineties taught this great course on, you know, the, the physical science aspects of, of, global warming and the political aspects of it. And not only was I hooked by this experience, but it turns out that Henry was a geophysicist who <laughs> late in his career, he did a lot of work on global heat flow, but late in his career was using a, a method related to what he had done for most of his career, but was allowing him to reconstruct ground surface temperatures over the last five to a thousand years. So it was this paleoclimate application that he was doing. <laughs> And I, I, you know, asked him at some point over the course of the uh, semester if I could work for him. I told him I still had a year of fellowship, and uh, he said yes. Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, you know, it it was this serendipitous, um, really lucky experience that you know drove me ultimately into what I would do. And I, when I talk to students about this, I tell them about this experience. It. It's that sort of combined luck with that that voice that's telling you to follow yes. a certain path. So it's part your values yes. and what you want to do and sort of taking the initiative to take a jump in a certain direction. Right. But there's also a lot of luck and contingency involved. Yeah, it's, oh, you use the word exactly. I mean, in so many of these stories, a lot of historians are, I don't know, obsessed with what we care a lot about contingency in the past and history. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. And it's another great story. for. It's instructive for students. Even in your case where you knew, at least, you know, you knew you were going to be in physics in some way. There are all kinds of twists and turns, though, from that to, to what you're doing now and that you can fail something like an exam. Right. And still and still succeed. Um, some people have said right. failures, failures necessary to success. But as painful as that can be, that is a, that's just a great, a great story. And it answers my question of how you got into climate science and also what a great course that must have been, because I'm super interested in history and policy and um 
you know, I don't, I'm interested as a, just a layperson in science and policy as well. And in fact, let's use that as a transition to, <laughs> so a couple of years ago, as you know, the annual Nobel conference at Gustavus focused on climate change. And I mean, can we can stipulate, right, that human influence climate change is real, it's here. I mean, is there, there's no debate about that, except maybe amongst, I don't know, people think the earth is flat. I, I mean, yeah, right. I, I, when I hear people, well, we don't know. I really, I mean, we can stipulate that it's real, correct? There's there's no scientific debate about it. The earth is yeah. warming and we're causing it. If you, you know, there have been studies on this, but that have looked at the consensus within science and, you know, over 90% of scientists um, agree with the statement that the earth is warming and we're causing it. As you get closer and closer to climate scientists as specialists, it goes closer and closer to 100%. So yeah. scientifically, uh, this is, uh, there, there's no debate. It's, it's as close to consensus science as you get in the sciences. I mean, as you probably know, scientists are, um, a curmudgeonly lot. We don't like to agree. <laughs> we like to right. point out, right. uh, you know, uh, holes in each other's theories. So it's exactly. hard to get that kind of Which is how knowledge, it's how knowledge advances. Historians too, right? You, you're a right. revisionist. Yeah, I know. I'm a historian. I have to revise. Hello. <laughs> yeah. So um, that said, what, what, what's, uh, and I know this could be a whole podcast, but just briefly, what, what's some of the strongest evidence for um, human caused climate change? I mean, for really, a, it seemed a crisis that we're in right now. You've written, for example, or spoken also about uh, mega droughts, but I, what, what would you point to as some of the really key pieces of, of evidence for it? I mean, we know CO2 is going up. We have direct observations of CO2 in the atmosphere since the late 1950s. We know temperatures have been increasing. They've increased by over a degree C since the um, mid-1800s. Um, and we know that those two things are connected. If we look back in Earth history, we see temperatures and CO2 have marched in lockstep. Uh, we have um, climate models and other um, basic theoretical arguments that uh, show us and point to the fact that as you increase CO2 in the atmosphere, you trap more heat toward the surface and increase uh, surface temperatures and increase the amount of energy uh, within the climate system as a whole. So you don't have to think just about surface temperatures. We're seeing um, atmospheric water vapor increase. We're seeing ice melt all over the planet. We're seeing the oceans warm up. Um, all these things that are consistent with the idea that the earth is warming, there's more energy in the climate system, and that the cause is increasing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And I'll also say, Greg, you'll appreciate this from a historian's perspective. This didn't happen last year because um, George Soros gave us a, a check <laughs> to say it. So, you know, this is built on over 150 years of climate research. So there right. were folks like Joseph Fourier and uh, Cervantes Arrhenius um, writing in the 1800s about the connection between Earth's temperature and uh, atmospheric constituents. So this is work that has been built over a century of scientific thought discovery that um, has led us to the understanding that we have now about how we're changing our planet. That's also an important point. I mean, there's a history not only to the to climate change and to the climate crisis, but a history to research about it. Yeah, not just <laughs> it's not just a bunch of liberal crazy people. I mean, um, yeah. So you know, there's this this idea that um, 
you know, about tipping points, I guess, coming out of Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, some of his writing. But anyway, are, are there are there tipping, I mean, is that valid when you think about climate change? Are there tipping points? Are there surprises? Does climate change come more, it's kind of my own lay feeling suddenly. I used to think, oh, well, it's, I, I believe it, it's happening, but I'll be dead before it really affects me. And I no longer feel that way. <laughs> right. Well, so tipping points, there, there are multiple um, terms that we associate with complex systems. So that's really um, at the heart of this. The, the Earth system is a complex system, and as a result, it has feedbacks and it has tipping points. Um, the problem is, is that it's very difficult to um, identify when you cross those tipping points. So uh, one of the you know, more famous examples is the melting of the polar ice caps in Greenland and Antarctica. Yes. Uh, for a long time, we've said, you know, it's really difficult to identify where these tipping points are, but we know they exist because when we look back in Earth history, we see evidence of very rapid climatic changes um, that can only happen through accelerating feedbacks um, that ultimately contribute to um, these tipping points. But one of the interesting things specifically about the ice caps that has been eye-popping for me as a scientist working in the field is that we actually, uh, scientists have actually identified the fact that we've likely crossed tipping points for the way that those um, ice caps are melting. Um, some real uh, just eye-popping studies over the last couple of years suggesting that for instance, West Antarctica, which has four to five meters of sea level rise wrapped up into it, has crossed a tipping point. And that the only question is, um, will it melt over the next several hundred years or will it melt over the next, say, nine to a, 900 to 1,000 years? But um, the way that the dynamics work specifically in that West Antarctic ice sheet um, suggests that it has crossed a tipping point, that it's melting due to exposure of warmer temperatures underneath the ice sheet and the glaciers that drain the ice sheet, and that we've likely crossed that tipping point. And um, we're seeing more examples like that as we move forward, um, where you know we can with certainty, with, with more and more certainty, suggest that we have crossed some tipping points. And so those are really you know, um, daunting things to keep in mind yes. and, and recognize, but there are other aspects of the way that the climate system works that um, are, are chronic threats and happen over longer timescales. I guess the challenge with thinking about tipping points is the idea that if we've crossed a tipping point, then what's the point of doing anything about right, it? Right, exactly. Yeah. That's a that's a argument that we have to be very careful about. So yeah. um, as we continue to increase greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we expose ourselves to the likelihood that we will cross more and more tipping points. So we're increasing the risk. But um, there's also value in working as urgently and as um, quickly as we can to try to keep as much greenhouse gases, as many greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere as possible. And if we end up at two degrees Celsius or 2.2 degrees Celsius or 1.8 degrees Celsius, that's a lot better than three or four degrees Celsius. So right. when you hear the discussions around this, people often point to a degree and a half or two degrees C as you know, a, a point that we don't want to pass, which is is true. But if we do pass them by a marginal amount, that's a heck of a lot better than um, if we blow past them and, and warm another degree or more. And so every effort counts. 
every everything that we do counts and it's not there these thresholds don't exist where if we if we pass them all is lost and we can't do anything right yeah so let's just do more of what we've, what we've been doing <laughs> that's a really super important point and it leads me to to ask you about i know you've thought a lot about this spoken about it written about it but the, the whole politicization of of, of science generally but spe specifically uh climate change i mean how, how do you how do you feel about that? How do you explain it if you can't explain it? And what is it like to be a scientist, right? Knowing what's happening, knowing the data, knowing the evidence, knowing what, what could be done, and then facing this incredible partisan, uh, you know, <laughs> polarized atmosphere around right. around climate change. Well, how do I feel about it? I think it sucks. <laughs> I really, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's an incredibly disappointing um, development. And, and the, I think the important thing to understand is that um, the politicization came after the um, effort by a lot of corporate interests to delay action on climate change. So we didn't start, you know, th these discussions about the danger of greenhouse gases started in the 1970s it, 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 and, and go back even a little bit before that. But there were uh, reports that go back to the Johnson administration about the the danger of um, increasing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and that was something that um, concerned Republicans and and Democrats, people on both sides of the aisle. Um, but over time, what happened is a lot of um, invested interests, and I'm not making this up. This is not my tinfoil tinfoil hat theory. This is, right. you know, uh, the product of a lot of academic research and That's historical right. work uh, to look at this. But basically, uh, the people whose bottom line would be affected by, um, you know, decarbonizing our economy really began to spread a lot of disinformation, um, kick up a lot of dust about what we know, what we don't know, really um, use the uncertainties that uh, were larger back 30, 40 years ago to spread a lot of doubt about whether or not we could definitively say humans were impacting the climate. And it was all for the sake of a greasy buck. And, you know, sure. now, and, and it's, 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 it's hard to comprehend um, how reckless that approach has been in terms of how it's imperiled um, the future of our planet, yes. of our of our societies, you know the the challenges that we face now because of the delayed action on um, decarbonizing our economy and addressing the climate crisis put us in a much more difficult position now than we would have been if we had uh, worked to address this 30, 40 years ago um, when it would have been a much more tractable problem. So now you know uh, the urgency is is extreme. Uh, and we have a much harder lift to really prevent um, the most serious risks of climate change. And, and it's because of those early attempts to um, really spread a lot of doubt about this issue. The politicization came because um, those efforts essentially got spun into a... Um, an ideology about that connects to a lot of other things, and we could talk about right. This well, it connects to the attack on democracy, for among other, among other things. Yeah, argue. yeah. The, yeah. You opened with the quote about you know the structural deficiencies in our democracy right, right now, but also you know thoughts about um, regularization, uh, regulation, um, essentially you know um, free market capitalism versus regulation right. and, and and addressing some of these issues, and so it became this just like just like issues of abortion and gun control, 
it became this um, this issue that's become politicized, but also um, connected to specific ideologies. And yes. that's disastrous because now you have an entire political party um, and a whole uh, range of um, you know talking heads that essentially argue that if you think climate change is real, uh, you're not a card carrying member of our party. Right. And um, it's it's really just disastrous because we need everyone's help addressing this this crisis and it's going to affect everybody. Yes, that's the part. I mean, you, you use the word reckless, which I, I, I think about that all the time. Are these people, I mean, <laughs> they really think it's not going to affect them or I sometimes think it's like the, the person you know, at least I have this image of the person who's dying of emphysema, but still can't stop, you know, still smoking, right? Still change. I just, I mean, I don't get it. This, this, this idea that um, <laughs> somehow we can keep doing what we're doing as a fossil fuel company or whatever. Um, it's just, it's, it's maddening to me. So yeah, I think it sucks. It sucks for all of us. I would, I would agree whether, it, whether people know it or not. Go ahead. It's dangerous to put these folks on the couch, but I do think there's two essentially classes of people. It's the people who, I think have cynically approached this doubt strategy and known all along. You look at Exxon, for instance, and they yeah. were doing um, research on climate change and internally acknowledging the threats of climate change decades ago. So it's Long clear, time, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, corporations like Exxon uh, were talking out of two sides of their mouths on this issue. I do think then there is a whole class of folks who have digested these talking points and have. Um, you know, be been exposed to these political um, spin campaigns that probably do seriously question the science, think that all of the um, different um, things that have been done to spread doubt about this are legitimate. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that is something that we absolutely have to take very seriously. And it is the people that we need to be reaching out to and um, convincing one way or another that the opportunities presented um, by pursuing decarbonization and renewable energies and all these amazing things that could be part of this energy revolution um, and decarbonization process, uh, that there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, and that there's a lot of good reasons to pursue this independent of whether or not you think climate change is caused by human beings. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. It's the um, boy. And I just that the quote I, I kind of led with in the introduction, I think, is incredibly important because I even in my own mind, I sometimes think, well, yeah, there's climate change, there's the crisis, but you know, what about suppression of voting? Right? Or what about stealing? I mean, real stealing of the election by uh, by laws allowing uh, you know state legislatures to to do that. Uh, Maybe in the future, but anyway, I really like how in that quote you put the two together. That it's not an either or that because, and I think about this so often. I mean, the science is there. And it's just like with uh, with COVID, it's happened earlier in, in our, certainly in our country's history. But what we lack is the political will and the political power, right? And until it seems right. to me we get we get people in office, uh, and to do that, you need to vote and your votes need to count. <laughs> we need good candidates. Um, we're, we're, we're doomed. I mean, I hate to think that way. I don't like thinking that way. But, you know, it's about policy. Let me um, kind of put you on the spot, way of a magic wand. You're now in charge of climate change, uh, at <laughs> least for the United States of America. What do you do? What are your, what are your top priorities? 
Well, I think the recipe is fairly straightforward. We have to transition to renewable energy, specifically within the energy sector. And, and that, that is something that's accelerating incredibly rapidly because of the fact that wind and solar energy are the cheapest forms of energy production now that we have. So 2020, for all of its um, the reasons it was significant, it was the first year that solar beat out wind and became the cheapest form of electricity generation uh, in the world. I've read and that. So, That's it. A lot of people don't know that. That's important. Yeah. Right. So we have to, you know, transition to renewable energies in the way that we produce electricity. We have to transition to electrifying many different um, areas of our economy and our infrastructure so that we're using electricity to um, to power those sectors as opposed to, say, fossil fuel, uh, natural gas, or otherwise. So, for instance, here at Columbia, our heating and cooling system is all on um, driven by natural gas. We have to electrify that system, um, and that goes hand-in-hand hand with cleaning our, our grid and, and improving um, the amount of renewable energy that we have on our grid. Um, but there's a lot of things that you can't electrify and that um, are more difficult to decarbonize. So there's lots of different industrial sectors. Uh, metallurgy, for instance, is one. Production of fertilizer, cement. These uh, technologies are all reliant on uh, fossil fuels in a way that are harder to transition to. So that's an area where we really have to do a lot more R&D to actually um, develop um, fossil-free or, or, or carbon-neutral um, means of performing those industrial tasks. Then we also have to address transportation, which in a lot of different ways um, needs to have mobile fuels, right? So fuels that right. we certainly can get around with electric cars, and that's great, but what do we do about aviation and transport? And I think um, that's an area where we have to think about things like green hydrogen, um, where we have to improve battery storage is another important area for these kinds of things. But we have those technologies. We just yeah. have to make them cheaper and scale them up. Yeah, you're taking but the words. We, I was just going to say, it's do, they're doable. Sorry, they're yeah. doable. This is not pie in the sky sort of stuff. Yeah. So, Greg, that's exactly, you know, you earlier said that it's a lack of political will. It is. We, in so many ways, we have the technologies. They exist. We just have to figure out how to deploy them at scale and build the political um motivation and the political uh, will to do it. Um, and, and I think that's empowering. I mean, these things exist. These aren't unsolvable problems, right? We have the technologies to make this happen. We just have to find the motivation to really accelerate this at the, at the urgent rate that's necessary. Right. And the last and, thing and, that I was going to say on, on technology, sorry, is no, the other side of the, the coin is we have to sequester carbon and figure out what to do with it. And that's another area where we have a lot of active technologies uh, for removing selectively carbon from the atmosphere. So we can actually passively remove CO2 from the atmosphere um, with various technologies. There's, of course, land use changes and things that we can do um, as far as tree planting and so on. But there are lots of existing technologies for taking carbon out of the atmosphere directly, taking carbon out of smokestack emissions. Um, and then there are technologies for what to do with that carbon once we've removed it, which is we have to put it somewhere where we can trust that it's going to stay there. Right. Um, I wonder. I want to ask you about that, actually. Yeah, I, I sometimes think about nuclear waste, the same sort of thing. But go, go ahead. Where, where would we put it? Where should we put well, it? So carbon is a little different than nuclear waste in the sense that, you know, if, if it leaks back out, um, it's not going to have immediate ramifications on the people who are exposed right. to it, but it'll have, you know, huge 
um, climate implications. Um, so I have two, I'm of two minds about this. One, we have to put a lot of it, um, and we're talking gigatons uh, of it in the ground. Um, there are different ways that you can do this. You can store it in old energy and gas wells. Um, the problem with those is that there's lots of holes in them where they've drilled to explore <laughs> them. And so you really have to make sure that it's not going to come back up. There are also other technologies for pumping it through specific kinds of um, geologic formations where it actually mineralizes as it goes through um, oh, wow. the geologic formation. And so you lock it up as a mineral, which is one of the, the best ways to do it, right? It's, it's, it's rock. Right. Uh, it's stuck in the ground. And, and I didn't know about that. That's cool. But here, here's, here's the sort of science fiction angle that I also think about with this. I think we need to save some of it um, in the event that we need to deploy some of it back into the atmosphere. I think, you know, as, huh. as much as um, this is an urgent problem that we need to, to remove carbon from the atmosphere, there's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what level of carbon dioxide is needed in the atmosphere um, for humans to maintain our way of life on the planet. And this is getting very much into science fiction and sort of terraforming our planet. But when you think about it, um, the climate changes on its own over many different timescales. And it may be that at some point we want to put a little carbon back into the atmosphere. And so I think that um, keeping some of it in a way that allows us to deploy it uh, in the future might be wise. That said, that's sort of a luxury to think about <laughs> way down the line. Right now we've got way more of it than we need. And we've simply got to, um, you know, keep, keep more of it from going into the atmosphere, take a lot of it out of the atmosphere and figure out a way to safely store it. Um, that is uh, all so interesting. Um, I never, I, you know, I never thought about, um, we might need to put it back someday. We'll be long gone, I guess, but, um, still worth right. pondering, even as, even if it's only sort of science fiction. Wow. Also fascinating. As we wind down here, I want as we conclude, I want to ask you, um, come back to your, your liberal arts education. And Steve Malama, one of your, I don't know, you, you took courses with Steve. Well, yeah, I know you did. Of course you did it at uh, Gustavus. He mentioned uh, a J term, a January term he taught that you were in. And he uh, said to me that I should ask you about the, the project you did for that J term. So because it's illustrative of, of, of how the liberal arts inform, can inform science and, 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 you know, your own, your own liberal arts education. So take it away. Man, I love J term. I mean, I, the J terms I did, I, I, I traveled abroad in, in Switzerland and built a seismometer. I took Don Quixote, uh, one J term. And then I took this programming class with Steve Melma. And, um, at the end of the class, we had to develop our own programming projects. And so, uh, the project I, I completed was I wrote a program to randomly generate haikus <laughs> and it, it was a lot of fun. You know I mean? We, you basically press a button and this program would spit out an infinite number of haikus. And <laughs> what was fun about it was, and this, this, there's a, there's a liberal arts angle to this, right? What is art? Right. Um, That's right. It, it, it's, there's a, it, it was completely randomly generated and some looked complete looked like complete gobbledygook and others looked like Dylan had written them. <laughs> and the only reason why they looked like Dylan had written them is because of, you know, the, the consciousness that I as an observer have placed on those words as they were generated on the paper. But, um, it was a, it was a great project and it was fun in the sense that, um, it was a, um, 
confluence of my interest in physics and uh, you know my liberal arts interests. Yeah, I mean interdisciplinary. It's just it's great. Love it. What about um make make the case for um I know you can obviously make the case for studying physics as an undergraduate and and for 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 a liberal arts college like. Like Gustavus, and feel free to make the case for for the Lamont Doria Observatory as well. <laughs> well, you know, physics ultimately, I mean, it, it gives you uh, this knowledge base for how to approach physical problems. Um, but I think, you know, what's so valuable about it, and I, I'm a per- perfect example of somebody who did physics and has ended up, you know, very far from the tree in terms of what I I do, but. In some ways, the reason why I was able to do it and the reason why I was even given the opportunity to do it is because as a physicist, you there's a certain logic and approach to problem solving that you have and a certain um, assumed degree of quantitative skills uh, that are necessary everywhere. Um, you know, the way that the world has evolved and it's changing. I'll tell you, Greg, uh, you know, working with historians where sort of I've, I've been working with a colleague who I'm teaching how to work with these uh, graded digitized data sets as a way of understanding drought in East Africa. Um, those skills are applicable across the board. You can, you know, in finance, in history, in your sciences, um, the, the world is just becoming more and more digitized and we're swimming in more and more data. Yes. And um, there's lots of different um disciplines that will teach you how to work with that. But physics is a is a great first principles exposure to the thinking that goes into it, whether it's um, how to work with those data, how to how to think about those data and apply them to different problems. And so I just think that, um, you know, the tools that you gain through a physics education have limitless applications, even more so in um, the modern world in which we live. And yeah. Then your question about, you know, the the liberal arts more generally, um, I I have this this seminar that I teach. And one of the things that I ask my students in a survey is, true or false, the purpose of college is to get you a job. (laughs) And it motivates a lot of interesting discussion. And um, I I think that answer has changed as education in the United States in particular has gotten more and more expensive. But you know, one of the things that we talk about is is skills and and what what com- what constitutes skills. And of course, there's skills like learning how to program or learning how to solve a differential equation. But there's a lot of these um, skills that you learn within the liberal arts that make you become a lifelong learner. Right. Um, allow you to sift through information to get to um, quote unquote truth, at least as objectively as we can. Uh, which of course is more and more important in an age where um, disinformation is rampant. Um, it teaches you how to be a leader. It teaches you uh, to be well-rounded and draw from um, so many different disciplines to become a real um, well-rounded citizen who participates in democracy and um, the communities in which we live. And I can't think of a better training. You know, I mean, I right. think that if I had learned just physics, I would have been a boat unmoored, you know, I mean, I I could have, I could have done a lot of things, but as a person and how I thought about applying what I learned in physics, um, I really needed the much more broad exposure that I got uh, through the liberal arts to be able to apply that in a way that was consistent with my values and the way that I understand those values in a way that's consistent with, you know, the bigger picture concerns that I have. And 
So I think all of those things go together in a liberal arts education in the most important and profound ways. Agree. And it's funny you mentioned that about the survey you use with your with your students. I uh, <clears throat> I have them read an article. Uh, you know, the different, it's something, it's by a former college or university president, and it's uh, something like college is... Uh, College is not a commodity or something like that, you know, so stop treating it like one. And the difference between here's your credential, go home, you want a credential, here you go, and an education and and learning how to be a lifelong learner. And then the, the I mean, the incredible, even apart from, you know, the applications of it, just the incredible satisfaction that one derives as a human being, right, from that, I think is, is there's no way to, no way to put a, put a, put a number on that or a value number on that. It's incredible. One, one educator said something like, uh, the point of a college education is to make the, uh, make your mind an interesting place to live the rest of your life, which I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and also great. to solve climate change. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, it, it even happens in real time. And, and this is an important story for me. You know, I, I, I was taking a um, T.S. Eliot class from Anne Brady in the English department. Oh, I she's wonderful. Yeah. Amazing. I took modern poetry from her. I mean, Great she was professor. phenomenal. But I was taking that class during the tornado. Hmm. And, I, you know, we were reading the four, tar- four quartets and discussing time, present, past, and future. And it was so – it was such a powerful class to be taking in the midst of this tragedy that we experienced at Gustavus. And it was – When I think back on that experience, that's how I understand what that experience meant for me. It was really the lens of T.S. Eliot and what we were talking about in that class. And I can remember, I still have the essay because I I wrote this really (laughs) sort of profound essay for me about um, just where I was in life at the time and the choices that I was making and what I was doing after graduation and how you know, the, the tornado had influenced my thinking about that and, and how Elliot had influenced my thinking about that. And, you know, I think that's just such a, a, a good example of how um, the liberal arts, it, it, it impacts our life in real time and it's meaningful right. and, and, and allows us to or understand the world around us in a way uh, that is very hard if you don't have that context. Yeah, exactly. Couldn't agree more. We need to get you to uh, send that essay if you haven't already to the to the archives at Gustavus because they're collecting all kinds of stuff around the tornado. Yeah, this has been an absolute pleasure. You've you've um, you know I from speaking with someone like you, a climate scientist. I'm always sort of left. Um, uh, you know, feeling feeling a little down, but also hopeful, right? I mean, there's so much, man. There's so much brain power in this world. If we could just get the politics <laughs> yeah. right under under control. Anyway, it's been a real pleasure. I know you're busy. Thank you so much for taking time. Are you traveling this summer for research or not for research? But ultimately, for a long uh, deserved vacation. Good. But Greg, I can't let you leave on a depressing note with regard to climate change. So I'm going to tell you my pitch about it. All right. Very quickly. You know, I, I get asked a lot if I have hope, et cetera. And I don't right. think that's the approach we need to take. My The analogy I always make is if you're on a, a ship being thrown about by the waves, it's taking on water. You don't ask the captain if he has hope that you're going to survive. You pick up a bucket and get to work. And we all have to pick up a bucket. We all have different skills um, uh, and abilities. So it's not about one specific uh, silver bullet. Everybody has to pick up uh, the tool that's, you know, their own to use and their own to pursue and get to work on this problem. And that's what we ultimately have to do. And we have a lot of agency. The way that the world yes. turns out over the next hundred years is up to us. Yeah, so let's that's, make sure. yeah. It's a much could, better could, one. Than- <laughs> 
then the yeah, worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah, and and your and the, the point about agency, I I couldn't agree more with. I mean, it's a major theme of all my courses, the history. You know, we're, we're, the ways in which we all face constraints, but we also, no matter what the constraints, have some agency, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's a that's a good note to end on. Um, so get to work, all of us, and you're already yeah. at work. Thank you yeah. so much, Jason. It's been a real pleasure. Um, best of luck with with uh, the the research. Um, we'll, maybe to check in again about the drought. I don't know what's going. Yeah, we, that, <laughs> yeah you're that's your old neck of the woods, right? The Northwest is really getting, yeah, getting yeah, clobbered. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, an absolute pleasure. Um, next time I'm in New York too, maybe we can we can hook up for coffee or something. So we'll take good care. Oh, that'd be great. There we go. Yeah, we can meet there. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Thanks right, so much. Great. Take care. It was a pleasure. Bye bye. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.